chapter twelve of abraham lincoln a history volume six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. abraham lincoln a history volume six by john hay and john george nicolay chapter twelve seward and chase mr seward and mr chase became at an early day and continued to be respectively the representatives in the cabinet of the more conservative and the more radical elements of the republican party each exerted himself with equal zeal and equal energy in the branch of the public service committed to his charge but their relative attitudes towards the president soon became entirely different mr seward while doing everything possible to serve the national cause and thus unconsciously building for himself an enduring monument in the respect and regard of the country was so far as can be discerned absolutely free from any ambition or afterthought personal to himself he was during the early part of the war so intent upon the work immediately in hand that he had no leisure for political combinations and later when the subject of the next presidential nomination began to be considered and discussed he recognized the fact that mr lincoln was best qualified by his abilities his experience and his standing in the country to be his own successor the attitude of mr chase was altogether unlike this as we have seen he did all that man could do to grapple with the problem of supplying the ways and means of the gigantic war with untiring zeal and perfect integrity he devoted his extraordinary ability to the work of raising the thousands of millions expended in the great struggle which was crowned with a colossal success but his attitude towards the president it is hardly too much to say was one which varied between the limits of active hostility and benevolent contempt he apparently never changed his opinion that a great mistake had been committed at chicago and the predominant thought which was present to him through three years of his administration was that it was his duty to counteract as far as possible the evil results of that mistake he felt himself alone in the cabinet he looked upon the president and all his colleagues as his inferiors in capacity in zeal in devotion to liberty and the general welfare he sincerely persuaded himself that every disaster which happened to the country happened because his advice was not followed and that every piece of good fortune was due to his having been able from time to time to rescue the president and the rest of the cabinet from the consequences of their own errors he kept up a voluminous correspondence with friends in all sections of the country to which we should hesitate to refer had it not been that he retained copies of his letters and many years afterwards gave them into the hands of a biographer for publication these letters are pervaded by a constant tone of slight and criticism towards his chief and his colleagues he continually disavows all responsibility for the conduct of the war in one letter he says since the incoming of general halleck 
i have known but little more of the progress of the war than any outsider i mean so far as influencing it goes my recommendations before he came in were generally disregarded and since have been seldom ventured i hope for the best those who reject my counsels ought to know better than i do to senator sherman he wrote the future does not look promising to me though it may be brighter than it seems to be since general halleck has been here the conduct of the war has been abandoned to him by the president almost absolutely we who are called members of the cabinet but are in reality only separate heads of departments meeting now and then for talk on whatever happens to come uppermost not for grave consultation on matters concerning the salvation of the country we have as little to do with it as if we were the heads of factories supplying shoes or clothing no regular and systematic reports of what is done are made i believe even to the president certainly none are made to the cabinet of course we may hope the best that privilege always remains it is painful however to hear complaints of remissness delays discords dangers and feel that there must be ground for such complaints and know at the same time that one has no power to remedy the evils complained of and yet be thought to have to another he said though charged with the responsibility of providing means for the vast expenditures of the war i have little more voice in its conduct than a stranger to the administration perhaps not so considerable a voice as some who are in law at least strangers to it i should be very well satisfied with this state of things if i saw the war prosecuted with vigour and success i am only dissatisfied with it because i cannot help thinking that if my judgment had more weight it would be so prosecuted his letters in this strain are innumerable in all of them he labours to keep himself distinct and separate from the rest of the government protesting against its faults and errors and taking credit for the good advice he wastes upon them he says we have fallen on very evil days under the influence of a short-sighted notion that the old union can be reconstituted after a year's civil war of free states and slave states just as it was the president has hitherto refused to sanction any adequate measure for the liberation of the loyal population of the south from slavery to the rebels hence we are fighting rebellion with one hand and with the other supplying its vital elements of strength then we have placed and continued in command generals who have never manifested the slightest sympathy with our cause as related to the controlling question of slavery these naturally have never been more than half in earnest and instead of their being impelled to the most vigorous action their influence has been suffered to paralyze in a great degree the activity of the administration in addition to this there has been enormous waste and profusion going out of high pay and excessive indulgence all these causes tend to demoralization and we are demoralized i cannot go into particulars but the instances abound it is some consolation to me that my voice and so far as opportunity has allowed my example has been steadily opposed to all this i have urged my ideas on the president and my associates till i begin to feel that they are irksome to the first and to one or two at least of the second 
all this time with the most facile self-deception he believed in his own loyalty and friendship for the president and used to record in his diary his sorrow for mr lincoln's fatal course september twelve he writes the secretary of war informed me that he had heard from general halleck that the president is going out to see general mcclellan and commented with some severity on his humiliating submissiveness to that officer it is indeed humiliating but prompted i believe by a sincere desire to serve the country i think that the president with the most honest intentions in the world and a naturally clear judgment and a true unselfish patriotism has yielded so much to border state and negrophobic counsels that he now finds it difficult to arrest his own descent towards the most fatal concessions he has already separated himself from the great body of the party which elected him distrusts most those who represented spirit and waits for what he says in another place september eleven how singularly all our worst defeats have followed administrative no blunders mcdowell defeated at bull run because the administration would not supersede patterson by a general of more capacity vigor and devotion to the cause mcclellan defeated at richmond because the administration recalled shields and forced fremont to retire from the pursuit of jackson pope defeated at bull run because the administration persisted in keeping mcclellan in command of the army of the potomac he never lost an opportunity for ingratiating himself with the general in favor or the general in disgrace he paid equally assiduous homage to the rising and the setting sun in the dawn of mcclellan's first successes in the west he made haste to write to him the country was indebted to me in some considerable degree for the change of your commission from ohio into a commission of major-general of the army of the union and your assignment to the command of the department of the ohio i drew with my own hand the order extending it into virginia it was my wish that you should remain in command on the mississippi but in this i was overruled his present command however he says is a more important one and he wishes kentucky and tennessee to be included in it and thinks both will be done when mcclellan was appointed general-in-chief the secretary eager to be first to tell the good news immediately wrote a note to colonel key mcclellan's judge advocate mcclellan is commander-in-chief let us thank god and take courage to newly appointed and promoted generals he wrote in the same strain even when he had become estranged from a prominent officer the slightest appeal to his amour propre was sufficient to bring about a reconciliation after he had lost all confidence in mcclellan and almost given up the president for not dismissing him general john cochran came to him and said mcclellan would like to retire from active command if he could do so without disgrace which could be accomplished and a more active general secured by restoring him to the chief command where he would now act in unison with myself says the secretary he entered at once into poor pourallee saying how much he had once admired and confided in mcclellan how the general came to lose his confidence how heartily he had supported him with supplies and reinforcements notwithstanding his mistrust his entire willingness to receive any correction which facts would warrant 
his absolute freedom from personal ill-will when cochrane told him that colonel key had often expressed his regret that mcclellan had not conferred and acted in concert with the secretary he replied i think if he had that the rebellion would be ended now further letters followed between them which are recorded in his diary but during these platonic negotiations mcclellan was finally removed from command mr chase cultivated however the closest relations with those generals who imagined they had a grievance against the administration he took general shields to his arms when he returned from the shenandoah after his disastrous experience with jackson shields's account of how he would have destroyed stonewall jackson if the president had permitted him did not apparently touch the secretary's sense of humor he received it all in good faith assured shields that if he had had his way he should have been supported and wrote in his diary sad sad yet nobody seems to heed general shields and i talked all this over deploring the strange fatality which seemed to preside over the whole transaction he dined with us and after dinner rode out to hooker after the failure of the chickahominy campaign he said general if my advice had been followed you would have commanded the army after the retreat to james river if not before to which fighting joe of course responded if i had commanded richmond would have been ours he warmly sympathized with general hunter after the revocation of his emancipation order in south carolina and allowed his preference for military emancipation to carry him in one instance to the point of absolute disloyalty to the president on the thirty first of july eighteen sixty two he wrote a long letter to general butler in new orleans striving to controvert the views of the president in relation to slavery in the gulf states and urging in place of them his own opinions to which he said i am just as sure the masses will and the politicians must come as i am sure that both politicians and masses have come to opinions expressed by me when they found few concurrence and he continued his letter with this rash and mischievous advice of course if some prudential consideration did not forbid i should at once if i were in your place notify the slaveholders of louisiana that henceforth they must be content to pay their laborers wages it is quite true that such an order could not be enforced by military power beyond military lines but it would enforce itself by degrees a good way beyond them and would make the extension of military lines comparatively quite easy here the obvious objection presented itself that such a course would be in direct contravention to the president's known policy and would be immediately repudiated and revoked by him the secretary foresaw this and added a prediction so reckless and so disloyal to his constitutional chief that if it were not printed by undoubted authority it would be difficult to believe he had written it it may be said that such an order would be annulled i think not it is plain enough to see that the annulling of hunter's order was a mistake it will not be repeated a volume could not more clearly show the secretary's opinion of the president 
the surest way to his confidence and regard was to approach him with conversation derogatory to mr lincoln he records in his diary an after-dinner conversation with an officer whom he seems to have met for the first time i then asked what he thought of the president he apparently had no perception of the gross impropriety of such a question coming from him the officer evidently knew what sort of reply was expected he said a man irresolute but of honest intentions born a poor white in a slave state and of course among aristocrats kind in spirit and not envious but anxious for approval especially of those to whom he has been accustomed to look up hence solicitous of support of the slaveholders in the border states and unwilling to offend them without the large mind necessary to grasp great questions uncertain of himself and in many things ready to lean too much on others of course after a dictum so thoroughly in harmony with his own opinions the secretary naively records that he found this gentleman well read and extremely intelligent in reply to a correspondent whose letters were filled with the most violent abuse of the president and other officers of the government he had no word of rebuke he simply replied i am not responsible for the management of the war and have no voice in it except that i am not forbidden to make suggestions and do so now and then when i can't help it he had no defence for his colleagues against the attacks of his correspondent except to say nor should you forget that a war managed by a president a commanding general and a secretary cannot especially when the great differences of temperament wishes and intellectual characteristics of these three are taken into account reasonably be expected to be conducted in the best possible manner this condition can only be remedied by the president and as yet he fears the remedy most the president was not unaware of this disposition of his minister of finance towards him presidents in even a greater degree than kings are kept informed of all currents of favour and hostility about them for besides being to an equal degree the source of honours and of power they are not encompassed by any of that divinity which hedges the hereditary ruler and they are compelled to listen to the crude truth from the hundreds of statesmen and politicians who surround them and besides this the secretary of the treasury was a man too direct and too straightforward to work in the darkness he records in his diary a singular conversation which he held with thurlow weed an intimate and trusted counsellor of the president and the bosom friend of the secretary of state weed called and we had a long talk i told him i did not doubt mr seward's fidelity to his ideas of progress amelioration and freedom but that i thought he adhered too tenaciously to men who proved themselves unworthy and dangerous such as mcclellan that he resisted too persistently decided measures that his influence encouraged the irresolution and inaction of the president in respect to men and measures although personally he was as decided as anybody in favour of vigorous prosecution of the war and as active as anybody in concerting plans of action against the rebels there is no doubt that mr weed would consider it his duty to communicate to his friends 
this disparaging view entertained of them by the secretary of the treasury indeed the context shows that this was expected and when we consider that mr chase talked and wrote in this strain to hundreds of people in regard to his associates it is likely that they were as thoroughly aware of his opinions and utterances as if he had made them in cabinet meeting but seward was as the president once said of him a man without gall and it was the lifelong habit of mr lincoln to disregard slights that were personal to himself he had the greatest respect and admiration for mr chase's capacity he believed thoroughly in his devotion to the national cause and seeing every day the proof of his pure and able management of the finances of the government he steadily refused to consider the question of the secretary's feelings towards himself it was near the end of the year eighteen sixty two that an incident occurred which threatened for a time to deprive the government of the services of the secretaries both of state and of the treasury a strong feeling of discontent gradually ripening into one of hostility had grown up in the senate against mr seward it was founded principally upon the ground formulated by mr chase in his interview with weed that he adhered too tenaciously to men who proved themselves unworthy and dangerous such as mcclellan that he resisted too persistently decided measures and that his influence encouraged the irresolution and inaction of the president in respect to men and measures and mr sumner who had up to this time been rather friendly than otherwise to mr seward was suddenly brought into sympathy with his opponents by discovering in the diplomatic correspondence a phrase bracketing together the secessionists and the extreme anti-slavery men for equal condemnation and criticism the feeling against the secretary of state at last attained such a height in the senate that a caucus was called to consider the matter which resulted in a vote being taken demanding of the president the dismissal of mr stewart from his cabinet as a matter of taste and expediency this resolution later in the evening was withdrawn and another adopted in its place requesting the president to reconstruct the cabinet in which although mr seward's name was not mentioned the intention of the republican senators remained equally clear a committee was appointed to present the sense of the caucus to the president but before this was carried into effect senator preston king of new york meeting the secretary of state acquainted him with these proceedings and he with his son the assistant secretary of state at once offered their resignations to the president on the morning of the nineteenth of december a committee of nine waited upon the president and presented him the resolutions adopted the day before a long and earnest conference took place between the president and the committee which was marked on both sides by unusual candor and moderation they one by one attacked the secretary of state not for any specific wrong-doing but for a supposed lukewarmness in the conduct of affairs and especially for a lack of interest in the anti-slavery measures of the administration which they considered essential to a successful prosecution of the war when the president reported this conference to his cabinet afterwards he said in his own peculiar imagery while they seemed to believe in my honesty they also appeared to think that when i had in me any good purpose or intention 
seward contrived to suck it out of me unperceived the conference ended without other result than an appointment for the committee to call again in the evening lincoln at once called the cabinet together and laid the entire matter before them he gave them distinctly to understand that in this proceeding he was not inviting or intimating that he desired the resignation of any of them he said he could not afford to lose any of them that he did not see how he could get on with a cabinet composed of new material and he dismissed the council with a request that they also should meet him that evening the committee and the cabinet seward of course being absent came together in accordance with the president's instructions and each party was greatly surprised to find the other there he was determined however to have a thorough and frank discussion so that hereafter neither in his government nor in the senate should it be possible to say that there were any points between them concealed or unexplained the president stated the case and read the resolutions of the senators commenting upon parts of it with some gentle severity a general discussion then took place marked with singular frankness both in the attack and the defence Collamer and fessenden speaking with more mildness than the others but grimes sumner and trumbull attacking the cabinet generally and mr seward particularly with considerable sharpness the cabinet defended themselves in general and their absent colleague with equal energy but with unruffled temper mr chase alone seemed to feel himself in a false position as we have seen in his interview with weed he was in the habit of using precisely the same expressions in regard to the secretary of state as those employed by the senators brought to bay thus unexpectedly and summoned to speak before both parties to the controversy he naturally felt the embarrassment of the situation he could not join the senate in their attack upon the administration and he could not effectively defend his colleagues in the presence of eight senators to all of whom he had probably spoken in derogation of the president and the secretary of state he protested with some heat against the attitude in which he was placed and said he would not have come if he had expected to be arraigned when the fire of the discussion had burned itself out mr lincoln took a formal vote do you gentlemen he said still think seward ought to be excused grimes trumbull sumner and pomeroy said yes collamer fessenden and howard declined to commit themselves harris was opposed to it and wade was absent the meeting broke up late at night says secretary wells in a milder spirit than it met the free talk had cleared the air somewhat and both parties to the controversy respected each other more than before as the senators were retiring mr trumbull paused for a moment at the door then turning walked rapidly back to the president and said to him privately but with great vehemence that the secretary of the treasury had held a very different tone the last time he had spoken with him the news of this stormy meeting quickly transpired and the next morning there was great discussion and excitement in the town the resignation of seward was regarded as irrevocable and all the amateur cabinet makers were busy in the preparation of a new administration the hopes of all the enemies of the government were greatly stimulated by this indication of divided counsels and the partisans of general mcclellan in particular thought they saw in this conjuncture the occasion for his return to power 
in fact they felt so sure of his speedy restoration to command that they began to stipulate as the price of their adhesion to him that he should dictate his own terms on his return that he must insist upon the disposal of all the important commands in the army they imagined that the president would be so helpless that the friends of mcclellan might demand any terms they thought good the president though deeply distressed at the turn which affairs had taken preserved his coolness and kept his own counsel on the morning of the twentieth in the presence of several other members of the cabinet who had called for further discussion of the crisis the secretary of the treasury tendered his resignation he held the written paper in his hand but did not advance to deliver it the president stepped forward and took it with an alacrity that surprised and it must be said disappointed mr chase he then at once dismissed the meeting he afterwards said that from the moment when he saw mr chase holding his resignation in his hand his way was clear before him he immediately sent an identical note to the secretary of the treasury and the secretary of state saying you have respectively tendered me your resignations as secretary of state and secretary of the treasury of the united states i am apprised of the circumstances which may render this course personally desirable to each of you but after most anxious consideration my deliberate judgment is that the public interest does not admit of it i therefore have to request that you will resume the duties of your departments respectively the next morning mr seward addressed a brief note to the president dated at the department of state saying i have cheerfully resumed the functions of this department in obedience to your command and enclosed a copy of this note to the secretary of the treasury mr chase found his position not quite so simple as that of the secretary of state he did not follow mr seward's example in returning to the cabinet as promptly as he did in leaving it he wrote him a brief letter saying i have received your note and also a call from mr nicolay to whom i have promised an answer to the president to-morrow morning my reflections strengthen my conviction that being once more honourably out of the cabinet no important public interest now requires my return to it if i yield this judgment it will be in deference to apprehensions which really seem to me unfounded i will sleep on it he had seen in the face of the president the gratification which the tender of his resignation had imparted and returning to his house while not entirely comprehending what had happened he seemed conscious that he had made a misstep he wrote a letter to the president from which we take a few paragraphs will you allow me to say that something you said or looked when i handed you my resignation this morning made on my mind the impression that having received the resignations both of governor seward and myself you felt that you could relieve yourself from trouble by declining to accept either and that this feeling was one of gratification he then went on to say that he was glad of any opportunity to promote the comfort of the president but that he did not desire him to decline accepting his resignation 
he said recent events have too rudely jostled the unity of your cabinet and disclosed an opinion too deeply seated and too generally received in congress and in the country to be safely disregarded that the concord in judgment and action essential to successful administration does not prevail among its members by some the embarrassment of administration is attributed to me by others to mr seward by others still to other heads of departments now neither mr seward nor myself is essential to you or to the country we both earnestly wish to be relieved from the oppressive charge of our respective departments and we have both placed our resignations in your hands he concluded by saying he thought both himself and mr seward could better serve the country at that time as private citizens than in the cabinet he did not immediately transmit this letter to the president and after hearing from mr seward that he had gone back to the cabinet his suggestion that both would better retire was no longer practicable after a sunday passed in very serious consideration he resolved to withdraw his resignation he was unable even then to imitate the brevity of mr seward's note he sent to the president his note of the twentieth enclosed in another in which he said that reflection had not much if at all changed his original impression but that it had led him to the conclusion that he ought in this matter to conform his action to the president's judgment he would therefore resume his post as secretary of the treasury ready however to retire at any moment if in the president's judgment the success of the administration might be in the slightest degree promoted thereby the untrained diplomatist of illinois had thus met and conjured away with unsurpassed courage and skill one of the severest crises that ever threatened the integrity of his administration he had to meet it absolutely unaided from the nature of the case he could take no advice from those who were nearest him in the government by his bold and original expedient of confronting the senators with the cabinet and having them discuss their mutual misunderstandings under his own eye he cleared up many dangerous misconceptions and as usually happens when both parties are men of intelligence and good will brought about a friendlier and more considerate feeling between his government and the republican leaders than had ever before existed by placing mr chase in such an attitude that his resignation became necessary to his own sense of dignity he made himself absolute master of the situation by treating the resignations and the return to the cabinet of both ministers as one and the same transaction he saved for the nation the invaluable services of both and preserved his own position of entire impartiality between the two wings of the union party the results of this achievement were not merely temporary from that hour there was a certain loosening of the hitherto close alliance between mr chase and the republican opposition to the president while a kind of comradeship born of their joint sortie and re-entrance into the government gave thereafter a greater semblance of cordiality to the relations between the secretaries of state and of the treasury but above all the incident left the president seated more firmly than ever in the saddle 
when the cabinet had retired and the president remained with the resignation of mr chase in his hands he said to a friend who entered soon after in one of those graphic metaphors so often suggested to him by the memories of his pioneer childhood and which revealed his careless greatness perhaps more clearly than his most laboured official utterances now i can ride i have got a pumpkin in each end of my bag nearly a year later he said in a conversation relating to this matter i do not see how it could have been done better i am sure it was right if i had yielded to that storm and dismissed seward the thing would all have slumped over one way and we should have been left with a scanty handful of supporters when chase gave in his resignation i saw that the game was in my hands and i put it through though the opposition to mr seward did not immediately come to an end it never exhibited such vitality again and its later manifestations were treated far more cavalierly by mr lincoln he had even before this dismissed one very respectable committee from new york who had called to express an unfavorable opinion of the premier by saying with unwonted harshness that they would be willing to see the country ruined if they could turn out seward and after this incident he never again allowed the secretary of state to be attacked with impunity in his presence End of chapter twelve